You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Are you one of those people whose personal happiness is tied to their success at work? If you are, you're not alone. If you're unhappy at work, it can spill over into your personal life, even on a temporary basis. And popular culture is full of stories about people who are successful at work, but who aren't at all happy. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. Terry McDougall is a marketer. She spent years in corporate marketing, mainly in the financial services industry, before starting her own business as a career coach. Now she helps clients find career happiness. She's also the author of Winning the Game of Work, Career Happiness and Success on Your Own Terms. In this episode of B2B Nation, we're going to talk to Terry about career happiness and why it doesn't always follow success, imposter syndrome, navigating the business world when you lack a mentor, and more. Terry McDougall, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, Michael, first of all, thanks for having me. I am Terry McDougall. I'm an executive and career coach. I'm also the author of Winning the Game of Work, Career Happiness and Success on Your Own Terms. I work with high achieving professionals who are successful, but not satisfied. And what I mean by that is that when you look at them on paper, there's a lot of success there. There's uh, working for good companies, good titles, et cetera. But a lot of times they're paying a higher than required price for the success that they're experiencing. So I help them to shift their mindset and learn new skills so that they can have more success with less effort. Before I became a full-time coach in 2017, I worked for 30 years as a marketer in the corporate world. So I started out in publishing and then worked my way uh, to the point where my last 21 years in the corporate world, I was working for two large national banks. I eventually rose to head marketing for several businesses and uh, kind of came to a crossroads in my career and, and looked at myself and said, what do I like to do and what am I good at? And that led me to getting the, the certification in coaching and to where I am today, running my own business. So what was the motivation to get into coaching? Did you, is this something you struggled with personally, like managing your personal happiness as part of your corporate or marketing career? Or is it something that you saw in other people? Or was it just something you learned about and was like, hey, I think I'd be good at that? Well, the funny thing is that, you know, I, I uh, know lots of coaches and we joke all the time that we basically end up coaching ourselves, <laughs> you know, because when you have experienced something yourself, you know what it feels like. And if you've been able to surmount those, those challenges or break through those obstacles, that you're in a position to help other people do the same. So I would definitely say that when I started in my career, I was that ambitious go-getter, I came into the corporate world. Uh, actually, I was the first person in my family to graduate for co from college. So I didn't really have anybody that could be a role model or a guide or mentor to me to how you succeed. So I was very keen. I was always observing and reading books and, you know, was kind of surprised sometimes about seeing other people get promoted and not really understanding how they did it, right? Because I would look at them and say, well, I don't really see a big difference between them and me. And uh, I... I did eventually start moving up, but really not at the pace that I wanted to, and often ran into obstacles or, you know, just had, you know, pain in my, my work life that wasn't pleasant. And I really wanted to understand how to get past that. I'd say that there were a couple things I had, 
at one point in my career had a really great mentor who I think kind of pulled back the curtain for me and started pointing out about what was really going on in the workplace. And that helped me to start understanding how to navigate. But I uh, did hire coaches at a couple times in my career where it gotten to a point where I tried everything that I felt like I could think of to maybe get a different result at work and it still wasn't working. So I definitely felt like bringing somebody in who was a professional, who knew how to guide me through certain situations might be helpful. And indeed it was. I mean, at one point I, I ended up hiring a coach when I was ready to sort of move up in my career. And the result of working with her was that within a few months, I was able to get a new job that within a year had doubled my salary. That was a good return on investment. <laughs> Results. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mentorship is is really important. I think I think I realized that maybe a little later than some people, but as someone who a lot of the college graduates in my family, people that I looked up to, STEM degrees, lawyers, and you know, not that they didn't have practical advice or anything about the business world but just a very different experience. So, you know, how do you navigate this and navigate that? And what does this mean? What does that mean? It was kind of foreign to them if I brought it to them. And then, like Mm -hmm. you said, you have to go and find your own way and your own people to explain it to you. Yeah. So we recently did an episode on burnout with Rob Bogue, co-author of Extinguish Burnout. And Rob said that one of the drivers of burnout is unrealistic expectations that we put on ourselves. He was talking about doing something you've never done before. And people expect that they're going to succeed and they're going to hit a thousand. Do you see that in your clients? Do do they have something in common around setting really high expectations or putting uh, kind of impossible demands on themselves? Yeah, definitely. I mean, high achievers tend to expect lots of themselves and they typically have track records where they've achieved a lot. And one of the things that I see very often is that they perform miracles all the time and they very rarely give themselves credit for having done it. You know, I, I'll work with people that they'll come into a session and tell me about all these great things that they've done. And then they'll say, Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. And I'm like, okay, stop right there. Let's look back and, and try to objectively look at your accomplishments here. Um, I think that a lot of times high achieving people will only compare themselves against their peers, right? So other high achievers. And in some cases, yeah, maybe they're lagging the the tip top performer in their company and they feel like they're a failure if they haven't met the highest of high standards. And I think that it's important to step back and put things in a broader perspective because otherwise we just end up pushing ourselves to the point where we don't have time to rest and and recharge so that we are prepared to come back the next day and, and bring our all to the work that we're doing. Um, I actually look at the challenge with work is a matter of preserving your energy. And a lot of times when people judge themselves harshly, they're actually allowing their energy to drain away so that they have less energy available to focus on productive activities, right? Because if you're worrying, if you're over planning or over rehearsing or catastrophizing, like, oh my gosh, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get fired. Like that just drains your energy. 
And then when it's time to perform, you just have less. So a lot of times it's just a matter of getting more disciplined about mindset and how we talk to ourselves and how we frame up the things that happen. Is it hard to do? Is it hard to get people to objectively look at what they've accomplished if they're their own biggest critic? Like, how do you do that? Yeah, I would say yes, it is. And what I try to get people to understand is that whatever coping mechanism or, you know, mechanism they've used to motivate themselves in the past up until now, it's been effective, right? It's gotten them from where they were were to where they are today. But it doesn't mean it's the best and most efficient way to motivate yourself. You can motivate yourself through fear. You can motivate yourself through guilt and shame. It's a very high price. It, you know, that that's a tough way to motivate, right? Because it, it's sort of like you're cracking the whip on yourself constantly. It's mentally taxing, I would imagine. It's very mentally taxing. And I think that what, you know, people will tell themselves, I mean, it's, I think it's hilarious sometimes because people will come into sessions with me and say, well, I just had my performance review. I got another, another five this year. This is the third year in a row that I've gotten a five. You know, I'm working on this project. I think we're going to be a couple of weeks late on this particular deadline. It's tough. And, you know, I'm really worried that, I, I might get fired. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, you've got to put this stuff in context, right? And realize that you don't have to be perfect. And in fact, there's no no such thing as perfection. Okay. We're all moving into the future and the future's unwritten. Something that maybe has worked in the past, you might do it quote unquote perfectly going into the future. And that might not be the right thing to do because circumstances have changed that were unforeseen, right? So I think the, the most important thing is to try to remain present and not, you know, put ourselves too far into the future or look in, you know, look too far into the past and start worrying or giving ourselves negative messages. The more that we're present and the more that we're there for ourselves in a kind way, the more we're going to be able to have a fuller tank of energy that we can use to reach our goals. Do you deal with imposter syndrome with your clients? The imposter syndrome is, is pretty common. It's when people feel like everybody around them knows more than they do. And it that's actually really interesting because I did a presentation, I think probably sometime last year on imposter syndrome for a women's networking group. And I found this great slide that I used and it it showed two uh, kind of uh, cartoons next to each other. And one of them was, um, it's sort of like a, a Venn diagram with like a little, I don't know if it's Venn diagram, it's like a big circle. And inside of it is like a small little person. And the whole circle is like colored yellow. And then there's the tiny little person in there. And the, the keys say the tiny little person, it's, this is what you know, and then it's pointing to the big circle and it's saying, this is what you think everybody else knows, right? That you think like you're the only one that doesn't know and everybody else knows all of this stuff. But the second diagram shows the little person and then lots of small little yellow circles that are the same size 
as the person. And they're saying, this is the reality that yes, there's a lot of stuff that other people know that you don't know, but you know stuff that other people don't know also. And there's not anybody that knows everything, right? So it might feel that way, but the reality is that we all have our perspectives and we all have our areas of knowledge and we just need to step into that and have some confidence. The one thing I'm curious about, about imposter syndrome is some of us, like I didn't set out to get into marketing. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. I think people who, this is what I want to do with my life. And I take all the classes and read all the books and do all that. And you feel prepared. And then there are a lot of people, maybe even more people than those who kind of fall into something or, you, you know, the journey takes you where it takes you and you learn maybe a little later in life what it is you like and what you enjoy. And there you are. And you're thinking, I didn't read the books. I didn't mm-hmm. take the classes. And mm-hmm. I think those people in my mind are more likely to uh, suffer from imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I think that that's really common. And I, I'd like to give a, a bit of a, a perspective. And that is that I actually went to school and I got an MBA with a marketing concentration. And I came out and shortly after I got a school, I got a job with a big bank. And guess what? Doing marketing and these big banks with big budgets and big advertising campaigns and all of that, they actually don't do marketing the way that I was taught to do it in school. And so I was actually kind of frustrated because I felt like, okay, I was taught this way to do it at school and that's not what's expected of me in this job. And so I think that what's important is just to realize that show up and do the job at hand and try not to have too many doubts about, are you good enough? Because is there anybody else there doing the job besides you, right? Like you're the person that's been entrusted with it and do the best you can. I mean, obviously if there's gaps and they, you know, you can, you can read a book or you can go to a class or something that, like that and learn, do it. But if you're getting the results that are expected of you in that role, and then guess what? You're probably doing a good enough job. And I guess another, Another perspective that I'll, I'll share is that very often in my career, you know, and I, I did, as I mentioned, rise to lead marketing for the businesses that I, that I was in. And there were a lot of challenges that I had never done before, right? Stuff cropped up, like there's a merger. Okay, Terry, come in. We want you to develop the communications for this merger, or we want you to come in and figure out how we're going to rebrand that company. I'd never done that before, but I just figured it out, right? I'm sure that there were experts. There are experts out there, but I just used my own judgment and I stepped in, I asked questions and I figured it out. And because I was willing to step into that gap and try to provide value, I was rewarded for it. And quite frankly, the people around me didn't know whether I was doing a good job or not because they weren't the marketing experts. I was. I wonder how people did a lot of that stuff before the internet. Now, like, you could do a Google search for advice on communications around M&A and, and see what people say. And it's like before you had all the information in the world at your fingertips, you really just had to figure it out. <laughs> and that was yeah, sink yeah, right? Well, you did. But the, I think the other thing, too, is that who is going to tell you that you weren't doing it right? Because they wouldn't have any way of knowing whether it was right or wrong either. 
So things were a little less multidimensional back then too. You know, it's like, okay, here's all our printed sales sheets. You know, that was marketing, right? It wasn't like, oh, what's our, you know, multimedia campaign and with social and all kinds of things. So some people early in their careers, they're eager, ambitious, mm-hmm. maybe starry-eyed. I think you kind of described yourself mm-hmm. this that way, right? Me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but eventually their, their priorities are, are going to shift right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like you, you and I are both parents. So we've mm-hmm. lived this. Your life changes, your priorities change, where you draw your happiness from changes. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give people who are maybe new to marketing, recent graduates, mm-hmm. just out of business school? It's mm-hmm. we're recording this in late March, spring graduations are coming up. So people who are entering the workforce, what advice do you give them about balancing their work and professional happiness with their personal happiness? Well, I probably have slightly different advice for people coming into the workforce versus people who maybe have been working for a while. And, and like you said, maybe have become parents and now they really want to shift how they invest their, their time and energy. For people coming into the workplace, you know, one of the things that I've seen with many high achieving, you know, especially people who were good students in school, is that they'll come into the workplace thinking that if I just do the same things at work that I did in school to be successful, I'll be successful in the workplace. And guess what? It's a whole different game. It's like going from checkers to chess. There's a lot more complexity in the workplace, but I will break it down for them and if you keep these three three things in mind it will it will guide you there's really three ways to add value in the workplace and that is you're helping them make money save money or reduce risk and so if you go in and you know it very well may be that whatever your job is is not directly making money or directly saving money but if you can think about how what you're doing ladders up or connects to one of those three areas, that's how you're adding value. So it's going to help you start thinking about what you do in the context of the business, which, you know, if you're going into a for-profit business, it's all about the money. <laughs> it's all about, and, and keep that in mind, because I think sometimes people will come in and I've seen it with new people in the workplace and they're focused on their tasks right? And they're like, hey, I did all these tasks well. Um, When am I going to get my raise, right? And they may or may not have really been adding value. And so if if you can start looking at that in the context of that, that's really helpful. I bet your marketing background comes in really helpful there because marketers, you know, you know, well, I created this beautiful campaign or everyone knows this message, but at the end of the day, if they're not buying the product, it didn't do Mm -hmm. anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I do think a lot in terms of what is the return on the investment. And I think about that in terms of energy. I think about that in terms of time. Companies think about that in terms of when they're hiring people. You know, when I'm working with people who are in job search, I will, you know, a lot of people will, I, I think, think about their resume as a, a description of jobs they've had before. And I really challenge them to, to think of it more in what's your value proposition. I'll really challenge people to say, 
you know, what were the problems that you solved? What were the actions that you took? What were the results of the things that you did? And was it measurable? Because if you can apply to a job with a resume that talks about how much money you saved, how much time you saved, the risks that you helped someone avert, or the money that you helped them make, if somebody's looking at that resume and they're thinking, okay, I'm going to pay $75,000 a year for this job, and I'm looking at this resume, and right off the bat, I can see that they either made or saved $200,000 for the company, their confidence level that they're going to get the return on the investment for hiring you is a lot higher than somebody that was like, here are the, the 10 tasks that I did. Because that, that doesn't say whether you did it well or not. It doesn't put it in context of, you know, how did that support the business? And it's really important to do that. Oh, you know, so I want to answer the other part of the question that you asked earlier about, you know, I, I kind of addressed, you know, maybe the mindset of a lot of people coming out of college and into the workplace, right? And understand you've got to shift it to the value. But for people who have been in the workplace, I mean, that's that's valuable to them, too. But people who maybe have been all in and, you know, burning the midnight oil, bringing their laptop home on the weekends and working so hard. And then all of a sudden they're a new parent. Maybe they've gotten married and they, they want to spend their time doing something else with their time, not working all the time. I really want people to think about what is the life that you want? You know, what? What would you like your life to look like? And start thinking about where you need to draw your boundaries in order to enjoy that time, right? Because if we don't have boundaries in place, work will spill over. I mean, we literally could work 24 seven, 365 days a year, and there would still be more work to do, right? I mean, there's always more to do, right? So- yeah. Think about what are the highest value things that you should be working on? How can you design your day to make sure that those high priorities get done? And then say to yourself, like, at what point do I want to say, okay, work's done and now this is my time, right? It could be, I mean, and you, you know, you would have to decide based on what are the demands of your job? What can you get away with? Um, you know, if you know, can you be more efficient during the week if you design your day differently so that you can go home without your laptop over the weekend? You know, that's that's really up to you. Um, but I know a lot of people feel so beholden to work that they actually don't have any boundaries. And so they they start to get so burnt out that when they show up on Monday, they're sort of like a hollowed out husk. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of energy there <laughs> to, you know, to work. And I, I actually think that, you know, somebody who's working hard and has a lot of energy and they're working 40 hours a week is probably going to get more done than somebody who's working, you know, 60 hours a week, but they're so exhausted that they're having to go get coffee every five minutes. It's interesting because when I used to commute and I, I was working from home most of the time, long before the pandemic, I sometimes showed up a bit as that hollowed out husk because the commute was so draining to me. And then when everybody had to work from home because of COVID, I was like, wow, all these people are going to experience what I've experienced that I wake up and like I have energy because all I have to do is walk down the stairs and mm -hmm. to my office. Right. But then a lot of people didn't know how to manage the work-life balance. I mean, look, mm -hmm. we threw a lot of things at people, right? We had a pandemic. Yeah. We had work-life balance. We had people trying to work from you know parts of their house that weren't designed to be offices. But 
Um, you know, I think there was a brief moment early on where I thought people are going to see how great this is and how much energy I can put into work because I don't spend an hour and a half trying to get there. Yeah, you know, well, Michael, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because I actually did a survey in December and January of marketers and it was a career satisfaction survey. And one of the questions that I asked was, how has COVID impacted your career satisfaction? And it was the the results were really interesting. 44% of the people said that there was no change in their satisfaction, but nearly equal numbers of people said that it positively impacted it and negatively impacted it. I mean, literally like less than a point difference. 27.9% said they were negatively impacted and 27.5% said that they were positively impacted. And when they gave the comments about the, the details of why, to your point, the people that were more satisfied were more satisfied because they had more time in their day, right? A lot of people, some people said that they had cut like three hours of commuting time out of their day. Um, or, you know, they had more flexibility. They could go and walk their dog in the middle of the day, right? And, and they just felt happier because they had more control. The people that were less satisfied, two two reasons were you know, the the biggest drivers that I saw. One was that their industry had been very negatively impacted by COVID. In many cases, there had been layoffs. And so there was actually more work with fewer people. So there's a lot of pressure and stress to perform. Or in some cases, you know, there wasn't demand for the product, but there was a lot of pressure in the company for marketing to fix that. There's only so much marketing can do. But the other area is that people were having a really hard time balancing, you know, and putting some boundaries in place between work and home when work and home were happening at the same place. You know, there's there's something that's nice about having that physical separation, right? Like when you leave work, you leave work, you know, but I, I actually have had clients that were like, okay, well, my office is on my dining room table and it doesn't matter if it's you know, on the weekend or, or, you know, 10 o'clock at night, if I walk by and I see my laptop, I have a compulsion to go and check to see if any emails came in. And, you know, it does take discipline to say, no, I'm going to close the laptop. I'm actually going to put it away and I'm going to give myself permission to enjoy my life in the times that, uh, you know, I'm off work, you know? It's, yeah. I think for our listeners who heard the the burnout episode, I talked about this a little bit. I have a dedicated space. I have an office that was built to be my office, which is a huge advantage. And I'm fortunate that I can do that. And I think for me, the other thing is my kids are young and they don't know any difference. This was no different to them than before the pandemic. So dad's in the office, dad's at work. We leave them alone. A lot of people aren't in that situation. Yeah, well, the one thing I didn't mention, and I think everybody's heard a lot about this, is that the the homeschooling, especially, you know, for younger kids, has been a huge stress on parents trying to work from home and be on constant conference calls and Zoom calls, and then helping their second grader with technology issues or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I can't imagine that. So fortunately, um, my wife played a big role there, but also, fortunately, uh, my kids have been in school for most of this. So um, places where total remote learning, I can't even imagine. Yeah, well, I have one <laughs> who's in school, but she's 17. So she's very <laughs> independent. 
um, and actually yeah. doesn't even want them to go back to in, in person schooling. I think she likes the freedom. Um, <laughs> of not I had that, to I had that problem with my first grader. Like <laughs> I can do all my work in, you know, when he's done with his work at home, he can play, he could do whatever. When he's mm-hmm. done with his work at school, the teacher has something else for him to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I actually, to that point, I think that there's, there's sort of a connection point there with working from home because one of the things that I'm a little concerned about is that the work will expand to fill the, the time that we've saved by not having to commute, you know, yeah. that, um, and whether, whether that's that, individuals will just say, well, I've got a little bit more time. I don't mind, you know, working until six o'clock because I'm home, right? Or work expecting more because they're kind of like, well, you're, you know, you could be working during this time. Like you were commuting between 7.30 and 8.30 before. So what's the big deal? You know, Um, I I think that it's going to, it's going to take some discipline to put boundaries in place. I think both from the company side and from the individual side, if remote working um, continues to be a thing, you know, and I think sometimes people look for, you know, external approval or validation, like, and if they are not getting it, they keep working longer and harder, rather than just saying, you know what, I've made a decision that, you know, I'm going to stop working at six. And I feel like I've put a good day in if I work nine to six. Right. Yeah. You know, because there's many, many bosses and many companies that if you could work 24, 7, 365, they'd be like, great, (laughs) (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) So you spent years in corporate marketing before you got before you started your coaching practice and you've got your podcast on marketing, which we'll talk about in a minute. What do you miss most about the corporate marketing work? Well, I mean, I you get to do big things when you work for big companies, right? Just uh, exciting big budgets and working with, you know, top ad agencies. And I loved the, you know, the really smart people that I got to work with. So the collaboration, I I really enjoyed that quite a lot. You know, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's, you know, politics and headaches and all of that. I felt like a lot of times in the corporate world, I couldn't move as fast as I really wanted to, you know, because you had so many stakeholders that you had to get approvals for and go through legal and compliance and all of that kind of stuff. Those are the trade-offs when you're working in a big company. You know, I don't, I don't get direct deposit every two weeks now that I have my own company. <laughs> I do kind of miss that. <laughs> you get to move at your own speed, but so does the funds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I mentioned the podcast. We are both part of the marketing podcast club. Uh, why don't you just, you could take a minute and talk about your podcast, but overall, I'm just kind of interested in how you like it. Uh, I, I really love podcasting. It's so much fun. I, uh, my podcast is called marketing mambo. And if anybody's interested in checking it out, they can look at marketingmambo.net. I started it at the beginning of this year of 2021. And it came out of a conversation that I had with one of my clients who is a marketing consultant. And we were basically just nerding out, kind of talking about this arcane intersection of marketing and technology and, you know, just really enjoying the conversation. And she said, you know, this is such an interesting conversation. It would make a great podcast. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. That sounds interesting. Like, why not? And, you know, I didn't talk about this, but it is one of the things that I miss about the corporate world is that, you know, when you're in a big marketing department and you're among all of these 
you know, specialists and really smart people that you can talk about trends and new things that are going on in marketing with other people that are, you know, basically experts. And I miss that. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I am a marketer. <laughs> and so um, the marketing mambo gives me the opportunity to do that, which is great. There's a question we ask almost every guest on B2B Nation, and that is, what is your favorite tool? What is the one thing that if we took it away from you, your productivity would just plummet? My Acuity calendar scheduler. That It's actually funny because when I first started my business, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be showing a little bit of who I am. I I was looking for the perfect calendar. <laughs> I thought, oh, I have to like go out and find out about all of the calendars that were out there. And I really hesitated for probably like three months before I committed. And it's hilarious because they're like fifteen dollars a month, right? But I I wasted a lot of time trying to find the perfect calendar. And guess what? When I would ask people, everybody had a different opinion. So I finally decided on Acuity. And it has been such a huge time saver. Um, it's just so beautiful to be able to set up different types of links for different types of meetings and send them out to people and they can find their own spot on my calendar. You know, I can keep track of how many meetings I've had with clients. You know, it just there's just so many great things about it. I know that you had also asked about, you know, previously when we were talking about this, like what do I wish was out there as a coach? I wish that there was a really well thought out platform that took care of all the things that are important to me as a coach, which calendar, you know, the calendar is very, very important, but also billing and keeping track of, you know, actually having a, a private portal where I can interact with clients, having, uh, being able to send them electronic contracts that they can sign, being able to share information or assignments, that would be great. There's there's actually a lot of them out there and I've explored many and there's always something missing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so I and I I've, I've like done the free trial on several of them and I just get to a point where I'm like, okay, it just it's not quite right. Hey, coaching application product uh, marketers, listen up. Yes, exactly. If somebody could come up with something that was just really easy for me and my clients to use and wasn't super, because there's some out there that, you know, are probably fantastic, but they're way more money per month than what I, it's, I, I think that they're probably better if somebody has like a coaching company and they've got a stable of coaches where, you know, they don't mind spending, you know, 500 or a thousand dollars a month. I'm not in that. I'm not in that boat. <laughs> to me, that's a lot. All right. Terry McDougall, thanks for joining us on B2B Nation. Michael, thanks so much for having me. That'll do it for this episode of B2B Nation. Thanks to Terry McDougall for joining us. Thanks to our fine friends and colleagues at Technology Advice for making B2B Nation possible, including Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and Emily Whalen, mentoring career coach for aspiring podcast showrunners everywhere. You can follow B2B Nation on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Here's new Mnemonics in the Guild to take us home. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation.